Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. From GPB News, this is Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, as the nation celebrates the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., we'll talk with Dr. Carol Anderson, one of the country's preeminent scholars of African-American history. Her book, White Rage, put her on the map as a leading chronicler of racial discrimination across the centuries. She describes moments in civil rights history that seem to be advances but end up being setbacks, like Brown versus Board of Education. That chapter on Brown was the one that broke my heart. Yeah. You see how close America came to really being amazing. Clearly, the resources are there to provide the kinds of human rights foundations for all of its people. Instead, we have policymakers who implement a series of laws to undermine Brown, to defy Brown. First, the news. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. In 2016, Dr. Carol Anderson's book, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, won wide praise because it put a new lens on how we perceive racial progress in America. In the book, as you'll hear in our conversation, Anderson documents how through our history, any advances that lifted up the status of African Americans were reversed by whites determined to fight for a white advantage in all aspects of life. Anderson followed that book more recently with one person, No Vote, in which she argues that blacks have been systematically disenfranchised at the polls. With these books, plus her writings in publications such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other national outlets, Anderson's become a preeminent scholar documenting the history of race in America. Dr. Carol Anderson, thank you so much for being here to talk with us on Political Rewind. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Bill. I want to start with an excerpt from an essay that you wrote some time ago. You talk about the great African-American poet Langston Hughes. And you say, in the 1930s, Langston Hughes poetically chronicled the chasm between the myth of the nation and its brutal reality. And then you talk about a poem that he wrote, which, of course, is a very, very well-known poem in the African-American community especially. And I want to play just a little bit of uh, someone reading that poem, because I think in many ways it's a theme that pervades your entire life. Let's listen to an excerpt from Langston Hughes. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain, seeking a home where he himself is free. America was never America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme, that any man be crushed by one above. It was never America to me. Oh. Let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free, equality in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. From a poem by Langston Hughes. On your uh, website, there's a description of you, and it says, from growing up to wondering and worrying about a brother serving in Vietnam to watching her neighborhood descend into a place the 6 o'clock news would repeatedly describe as, quote, on the Near East side today, Professor Anderson grasped early on that policymakers and activists were at work shaping our world. She set out to find out how and why and then grapple with the consequences. What does that, what does that mean? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and we got to Columbus, Ohio uh, the long way. My father was military, career army, um, over 20 years. And when he retired, he wanted to move to Columbus so that my older brother could go to Ohio State University. 
And when we moved to Columbus, I, I remember my mother had uh, found this home that she loved, and it was on Oakland Park. And the realtor turned to my folks and said, no, that's not where you people live. I'll take you to where you people How live. How old were you when that happened? Do I was you about imagine? three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are, the, there are some memories that are just seared in your brain. And um, we ended up moving to a neighborhood called Linden. And within two years, there was only one white family left on my street. Um, this was the era of blockbusting. Mm -hmm. and, um, and but on, in Linden and on my street, one of the things that, that struck me was that you had people who were doing everything they were supposed to do. These were those hard-working, God-fearing folk um, who had the, the trilogy, the Trinity, sitting on their mantelpiece. Martin Luther King. Right? <laughs> John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. And Jesus. And Jesus. <laughs> right? Okay. These are the God-fearing folk. And, and they're going to work every day. They're, they're working in the factories um, because the schools suck. But you still had good manufacturing jobs that paid a living wage. Um, and then those jobs started going away. The plants started shutting down. And I remember my father being on the phone all the time with the city because the city wasn't doing its basic job, like picking up the trash, um, like cutting the grass in vacant lots that the city owned, and watching my neighborhood descend into the hood. And seeing that these are people doing everything they're supposed to do. And everything around them is collapsing. How does that happen? And your history in, in terms of understanding what can happen to African Americans in this country goes back further. You say at one point, my great-grandfather was enslaved. That's one damn hell of a hill, right? My father came through Jim Crow. My uncle almost got lynched. And I came through the era where it was towards the end of the civil rights movement. I think for this generation, it is a combination of being so connected via social media and so isolated in other ways, and where prior to this regime, the racism was so hidden. So that's really hard to figure out. That in itself is a statement I'd love to look into more. But what did you learn about your great-grandfather growing up? Was it talked about in your family? Did your grandparents talk about what his life was like, or did you know only that he was a distant memory? My great-grandfather's story came out because my cousin Giles, my father's cousin, was the family genealogist, and he started hunting. And he found this incredible story where my great-grandfather um, was enslaved in Tennessee, and he had fallen in love with the woman next door and refused to work. Imagine the kind of that that takes, I, I love this woman, and until I can be with her, you're not getting an ounce of work out of me. Wow. So, so you know the story, the rest of that story? And so his master, his owner, was like, okay. And so his owner bought her and to bring her onto the plantation. And my great-grandfather continued to work, but then he had what they called a side job. And with that side job, he saved up enough money to buy her freedom and his. And then they hopped in a wagon and they went west uh, to get out of the, the south. So, Wow. So these are your great-grandparents. Yes. This is the, you're yeah. the progeny of that relationship. Absolutely. <laughs> and and, and I, I understand now a piece of me, right, the, the kind of stubbornness, the hard-headedness, the I will have my freedom, I will fight for my freedom, I will defy the obstacles. I, it, it makes sense to me. Um, and you say your uncle was almost lynched at one point. What yes. was that story? And so this was in Oklahoma, because this is where they went out west. And Oklahoma is west, but it's also the south. Mm -hmm. My uncle was accused by a white man of stealing. But it was actually the white man who had been stealing from the store. And my uncle was like, you are not going to lie on me. 
and the white man said some stuff to my uncle and was lying on him, and my uncle beat the crap out of that man. Let me put it another way. A black man put his hands on a white man, and so the lynch mob was coming. And so my grandfather put my uncle in the back of the flatbed truck and covered him with hay and took off up north to drive my uncle to safety. And, and so they got up to Michigan, and that's how a branch of the family ended up in Michigan. So as you were growing up, you heard these family stories. Mm-hmm. Do you recall, aside from understanding when you were three years old, uh, you, you know, this strange memory still seared in your consciousness that you weren't allowed to live in a certain neighborhood, do you remember as you began your journey through school when you first recognized that discrimination was going to be a force in your life for at least a period of time? When I was bused. Got bused to a predominantly white school. And I remember when I was in utero, my father was like, you're going to college. (laughs) (laughs) Started the application process. Right, right. In utero. I think I may have just, I may have been a zygote, right? (laughs) You're going to college. (laughs) And, um... And I remember when I first got to Brookhaven, which was the school that I got bused to, I said, okay, so I need to take, I need to sign up for my college prep courses. The counselor looked at me and the guidance counselor said, no, you're going to make a great secretary. And I said, no, I'm going to college. And she said, no, you're not. You're going to make a great secretary. And they put me in the vocational track of, you know, typing and shorthand and I'm like, "Uh uh-uh. So I would check myself out of study hall and go sit in on the college prep classes because I knew that's where I was supposed to be. And that worked for a while. And then they figured out what I was doing. (laughs) And they're like, you can't do that. I said, I can't sit in a college prep class. And she said, the school board won't allow it. I said, so the school board doesn't want me to get educated. And I mean, and so this is the way it was till... Um, I realized I could not count on the folks in that school to help me figure out how to get to college, so I was just trying to figure it out on my own. And I I, uh, got admitted into Miami University, which is a really good school. And she called me into her office, and she said, Carol, you, Miami, you're not as smart as you think you are. You need to go to a place much more in line with your academic abilities. And so it's that kind of, of racism where there was no way that this black child from the Near East side was ever going to be college material. So it was me figuring it out and having this voice in my head and in front of me telling me that I didn't have what it takes. Did you know as you were going through these experiences unequivocally that you were going to head to a career in which you would try to look at racism, analyze racism, deal with uh, the consequences of it? You're shaking your head, no? I, you, no, I didn't. I, di- I didn't know that, to tell you the truth. I, I knew early on, because as I mentioned, my brother, my brother was in Vietnam, and I remember as a child, the newspaper, the Columbus Dispatch, would have the body count on the front page. And the body count was made up of these stick figures. And so, like, a whole stick figure was, like, I don't know, 100 dead or something like that. And I, every time I would look at a stick figure, I would wonder whether some part of that body was my brother. And so I'm thinking, I'm asking myself, what is a communist? Who are these communists? Why is my brother over there? And so where I, I knew I was headed was in terms of looking at foreign policy. In the eighth grade, for instance, uh, we were supposed to write a, a biography of, of some big figure. And my, 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 my peers are writing on Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. I wrote on Joseph Stalin. <laughs> right? <laughs> Who are these communists? <laughs> and so actually my, my area of expertise, I got my Ph.D., my undergrad, is in political science with an emphasis on U.S. and Soviet foreign policy. And the history is an emphasis on U.S. foreign policy <laughs> and international relations. My Ph.D. is in diplomatic history. When did you make the turn? 
What was it that inspired you to focus on current American history and, and 20th century American, 19th century American history? It was when I was in that Ph.D. program. And, um, you know, the way that it's set up, you read in multiple fields. You have your major field and where you're reading, like, a bajillion books. <laughs> um, but you also have your, your cognate fields. And as I'm reading there, it struck me. It was my first research seminar. And I, it struck me that when I'm reading in Cold War history, and when I'm reading in the history of civil rights and the history of decolonization, and the, all of these things are happening at the same time, but none of these literatures are talking to each other. But they've got the same people in there. Harry Truman's in there, you know. Um, and I was like, it doesn't make sense that somebody would just, like, pop out their Cold War brain, put in their civil rights brain, and then just work on civil rights issues. And then, but, you know, and I said, I told my advisor, I said, there's something there. And he said, well, if you can find it, go for it. Is that what led to Eyes Off the Prize? Yes. Uh, which was, was that your first book? Yes. T tell us, listeners, Eyes Off the Prize deals with the American, early uh, years of the American civil rights movement, but in just the way you're talking about, through an international lens, through the United Nations and the work. It, tell us a little about that. Right. And so, and in fact, that book emerged out of that research paper in that research seminar. And what I was asking, it really came out of, um, out of growing up in Linden. How could all of the courage and all of the martyrs and all of the bloodshed of the civil rights movement still leave an America where the actual life expectancy of African Americans has declined, where schools are more segregated than ever, where, you know, as I'm looking at these kind of like basic human rights standards, the power of the civil rights movement hadn't been able to address them. That was the question I started asking. And what I found was that in the early 1940s, the NAACP had conceptualized the struggle for black equality as a human rights issue, not just a civil rights issue. Human rights are much broader. Explain to listeners, because that's always a fascinating subject, the difference between human and civil rights. Right. And so civil rights, you know, one way to think about civil rights is to think about our Bill of Rights. You, the, the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the right not to be illegally searched and seized, these, these basic civil rights. Human rights, much broader. They incorporate those civil rights, but also include the right to education, the right to health care. The right to basically a living wage job. Food, clean Food. water. What? You know, all of those basic things that you need in order to live. And so the NAACP had conceptualized this struggle as a human rights struggle, saying that centuries of slavery and then another half century of Jim Crow had done enormous damage. And while the right to vote is absolutely essential, that's not going to be powerful enough to begin to deal with the, the damages brought on by slavery and Jim Crow. There has to be a full-bore commitment to quality education. There has to be a full commitment to health care. There has to be a full commitment to a living wage job and adequate labor protections around that. And so they fought for it. They fought hard. They fought so hard, they went up into, they managed to get into the State Department's consultant delegation to the founding conference of the UN. And the State Department was dealing with the power of the Southern Democrats, particularly in this case, Tom Connolly out of Texas, who was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And they knew that any treaty would have to come through his committee. So the State Department didn't want to have anything in that U.N. treaty that was going to tick off the Southern Democrats. Well, that meant that there was not going to be anything in there about anybody's rights because the Southern Democrats did not believe that black people had rights. And so you're seeing this kind of massive clash happening because the U.N. is emerging out of the hell that the Nazis have wrought, so, and, and Auschwitz is being opened now. So how do you begin to wrestle with that? How do you square that circle? NAACP went in there saying, you must have 
a full commitment to human rights in the UN Charter. Tom Connolly is like over my dead body. And NAACP is like, okay. <laughs> and <laughs> there was not, nothing they could do. Yeah. Well, see, and this is one of the reasons, this is where my work really begins to, to speak to me because I'm fascinated by those who seemingly have no power, find ways to exert their power to change the dynamics of their lives. And so it looks like the NAACP has no power in this. Instead, but they had almost 2,000 branches, and they started working in coalition with the American Jewish Congress. And so when Edward Statinius, who was the acting secretary of state, says, well, you know, there's just really nothing we can do. And, and so Walter White says, so let me see if I can get this right. While we're opening up the death camps, you don't believe that we should have a commitment to human rights. Is that what you're saying? Is that what you want me to spread out to our 2,000 branches and to the media? And the U.S. is right now is all about we've got to get the media on our side because they saw what had happened with the Treaty of Versailles after the First World War, how that thing went down. So this is all about, oh. yeah. And so you, using the power of, of public relations, using the power of the press, using the power of bad narrative out there about U.S. intentions coming out of this war, they managed to get the language in the charter. But John Foster Dulles, he said, don't worry, I got this. John Foster Dulles would eventually be Eisenhower's Secretary of State. But he was one of those big foreign policy wonks that Republicans and Democrats listened to. And so he was on the U.S. delegation to the U.N. And he said, I got this. I got this. He said, yeah, we'll put that language in there. That there shall be no discrimination on account of race, language, sex, religion, da, da, da. da. But then there's Article 2, Section 7 the Domestic Jurisdiction Clause. And it says, and he inserted that pony in there, there is nothing in this charter that gives the UN the right to intervene in matters which are essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of the state involved. That means that the state would have to say, you know what, we are messing up. We are, like, discriminating against our people. So, UN, could you come in and look at this and figure it out? Now, what state do you know is going to do that? Yeah. Nevertheless, in 1948, mm -hmm. it's interesting, in the 70th anniversary, the United Nations passed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Yes. The preamble to that document says, just the first line, whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world, and it goes on and says, now, therefore, the General Assembly proclaims this universal declaration of human rights as a common standard of achievement for all people and to all nations. Yes. And that declaration was brought about because so many things were converging on the U.S. at that moment that it was very clear in terms of foreign policy that the U.S. had to have something that could say, we are the leader of the free world. The words are beautiful. They don't have much impact. <laughs> right. And this was part of the beauty of being a historian and getting into the archival research, is that the folks in the State Department are saying, look, we can do this because it's a mere declaration. It's not a yeah. treaty. Yeah. And as a declaration, it's just a statement. Yeah. It's, just, it's just some words. If you're just joining us, my guest today on Political Rewind is Carol Anderson. She's the chair of the African-American Studies Program at Emory University and author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide and One Person, No Vote. I love the fact that we talked a little bit about a period of time that we don't think much about in terms of efforts to establish civil and human rights in this country. So that's wonderful. But let's move into the meat of the work you've been doing uh, for some time now. The book that really put you on the map was uh, White Rage. And as we talk about White Rage, I want to start by mentioning a really interesting um, 
note that I believe you got. You got an email from a man who described himself as a member of a, quote, old white male book club in Anchorage, Alaska. He thanked you for connecting the dots of a history that includes his lifetime. And he says, I'm a strong believer in the power of fact. And I do think that exposing all this the way you have will help us move forward. That in itself, to have an old white guy like me uh, being able to listen to the work that you put together, how white rage, um, what white rage tells us about who we are as a people is really important in talking about this subject because we all need to understand this. White rage began with you sitting at home watching the news and shaking your head uh, watching uh, the coverage of the Michael Brown, the aftermath of the Michael Brown killing in Ferguson, Missouri. What, what was happening to you? What were you thinking as you watched the news? So I'm, I'm watching the news. I'm in my home office. I've got the TV on, and I've got an op-ed project. Um, I'm in the op-ed, I was in the op-ed project at Emory, and we had, a, um, had to have an op-ed ready that morning for an afternoon um, session. And, and, and I'm sitting there watching, and it didn't matter what channel I flipped on, whether it was MSNBC, CNN, or Fox, they were all saying the same thing. Look at black people burning up where they live. Lord, can you believe black people? Who burns up where they live? And so it was this narrative of black pathology that is so essential to the kinds of policies that emanate out of this nation, right? That there's something wrong with black people. Look at them burning up where they live. And it was so ahistorical. And I'm sitting up there shaking my head, no. I had lived in Missouri for 13 years. I used to teach at the University of Missouri in Columbia. I saw the way that that state operated. And I'm sitting up there just going, no, this isn't black rage. This is white rage. And then I went, er. Like, almost like Scooby-Doo, whoa, <laughs> uh, and saw, and I said, no, because what was missed, we were so focused in on the flames, as we are as a nation, that we missed the kindling. We missed all of those policies underneath that led to those flames. And that's when I started writing the op-ed that ended up in the Washington Post. Which, which became, went viral. Went viral. And led you to write the entire book. What's the uh, kindling that we didn't understand? So the kindling. So in, just in Missouri alone, in Ferguson alone, for instance, in terms of 67% of the population is African American. In the 2013 midterm elections, only 6% of the voter turnout was African-American. The black voter turnout was 6% in a city that is 67% black. How does that happen? Because I remember one of the things was that people were like, yes, and the, the, all of the leadership in Ferguson is white in a town that's 67% black. How does this Well, it happens because of disfranchisement. It happens because of the ways, those policies. It's not like it's on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, where you see this massive clash of nonviolent protesters, and you see these cops beating down folk. That didn't happen there. Instead, were these little tweaks that you would hold the, um, the municipal election um, not on cycle with the other elections, that you would have, you wouldn't put any kind of identifying, party identifying marks on the candidates. So all of these things had depressed that black voter turnout. When a people feel like they don't have a democratic stake in the nation, in the governance, you are creating massive problems. You're creating an alienated mass. One of the things to be clear about the title White Rage also, though, is that you're flipping the equation 180 degrees on its head. Uh, you're saying, no, no, this isn't about black rage. This is about how white people are reacting to African-Americans. One of the main theses of your book yeah. is they're demanding what, what you tell us are, are the rights of all people. And so it's the white folks who are, are angry. And in the book, you lay out how every time we've seen progress in African-American rights in this country, there has been reversal after reversal to turn that around. 
you start with the end of the Civil War, mm. free, freeing the slaves. Yeah. A wonderful moment in American history. But what? Ooh. But Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson. So you get Andrew Johnson, who becomes the president after Lincoln is, is assassinated. And Andrew Johnson does not believe that this was a war about slavery. Stop me if this sounds familiar to anything we have heard recently. This was about the union and keeping the union. States rights. Mm -hmm. States rights. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so Johnson was also a slaveholder. He set up that he pr basically provided something close to blanket amnesty for the Confederate leaders, for their political leaders and their military leaders, which then allowed them to resume control of their state governments. And they implemented the Black Codes, which basically said that African Americans had to sign a labor contract, an annual labor contract, and they couldn't leave that job to go to a job that had paid better. And that if they refused to sign that labor contract, they could be arrested for vagrancy and then have their labor auctioned off. This is slavery by another name. And it also said that African-Americans could only work in certain jobs. They could either work in the agricultural field or as a domestic. So if during slavery you had learned the skills of, say, being a blacksmith, you couldn't be a blacksmith unless the mayor or the judge signed off on you having that other. So this was, again, a way to, to corral African-Americans um, into the kind of prescribed positions. Black people had to be put back in their place. They thought they were free. They need to understand they are not. You point out that even the uh, federal promise of 40 acres for oh. freed slaves fell apart quickly. It never materialized. Exactly. I mean, Andrew Johnson was, was clear on that as well as he rescinded um, that order coming out of the Freedmen's Bureau. So you're seeing this, this m incredible moment of freedom then being eclipsed by a series of policies that are designed to undermine that freedom. Well, another landmark, which comes 80 years later, you tell us, that seems to be a step forward for African Americans in this country, is Brown v. Board of Education. Now, I think it's fairly well known at this point that uh, the decision in 54 took a, f a subsequent decision two years later by the Supreme Court to actually get states and school districts off their butts, to be candid, to do anything at all about it. But you would contend that Brown v. Board of Education was reversed and what seemed to be advances there were turned around, too. That chapter on Brown was the one that broke my heart. Yeah. It, it, it broke my heart, researching it and then writing it, because you see in this moment how close America came to really being amazing amazing where the in, because this is coming out of the second world war where the u.s is basically an economic behemoth so clearly the resources are there to provide the kinds of human rights foundations for all of its people instead what we have we have policymakers who implement a series of laws and policies to undermine brown to defy brown one of the major ones that I, I track through there is the massive resistance. And that was the massive resistance to Brown. And you look at Virginia. And in Virginia, what they did was they shut down the black public schools in Prince Edward County. And but in shutting, because in shutting down those schools, it's like, see, now all of our schools are equal. The white schools are equal with the black schools because nobody has a school. Nobody has a public school. But the subtext of that was that the legislature was then providing state funding for tuition vouchers so that white kids could go to all white private academies. So white children were able to continue their education, but there was nothing for black children. I, I'm a Chicagoan by birth, but I've been here since 1983. And it wasn't until I moved down here that subsequent to my arrival, I first heard the term seg schools. <laughs> And they were all over the South, and Georgia had plenty of seg schools, oh, segregated okay. schools for white students. Exactly. And so you, you can see then as, as you're providing public taxpayer dollars, right? And understand this, too. Black people are paying taxes. So 
tax dollars going to ensure that white children continue to be educated? And then there's nothing available for black children. Um, and so the kind of inequities that led to Brown, and those inequities were huge. Um, in Mississippi, the, av the d average um, funding in terms of the disparity was a 751% disparity in funding between white schools and black schools. So we're talking, on average, the NAACP identified that the average disparity was 252% in terms of differential funding. This has a lot to do with the kind of quality of education that we're talking about. Think about where we are right now, because this nation systematically refused to educate black children. When you say this nation. Yes, this nation. But do you mean a section of this nation? No. That's a really important point. Um, it isn't just the South, is it? Oh, my it? God, no. No. I mean, as I said, I'm from Columbus, and, and you know, that's not where you people live. And when I get bussed to a white school, oh, no, you're not going to college. You're going to make a great secretary. And so, you know, so one of the things I talk about briefly in um, the book, for instance, is in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee, what they did was they're like, oh, fine. And so they would bus black kids into white schools, and then the black kids would have to basically stay in the same room all together. So you had internal segregation within the, the school up north. And this, when we're, when we're thinking about it, we continue to have that kind of internal segregation. So when I was in Columbia, Missouri, one of the largest high schools there, Hickman, was like 35% black, but you could count on one hand the number of black kids who were in the AP courses. So you have that kind of internal segregation happening within the schools. And think about Boston blowing up in the 70s. The, the busing uh, uh, issue in Boston, I, it was a conflagration. The Southeast fighting so that their children would not end up in schools with black kids. There was, I, I don't know if rioting is the right word, but yes. there were certainly v vigorous demonstrations in the street. It was horrible. It was horrible. And you remember the um, Teddy Kennedy, son of Boston, right? You know, and the Southeast came after him, chased him into the federal building, shattered the glass in the federal building. I mean, this was, yes, yeah, this was a riot. I'll tell you a quick story. Yeah. Um, I, told, I said a few minutes ago, I moved from Chicago in 1983. Uh, I'd been a political reporter in Chicago, and the last campaign I covered before moving down here was the election of Harold Washington, first African-American mayor of Chicago. Uh, it was one of the most frightening and volatile elections I've ever covered. Uh, we'd go into certain neighborhoods, white neighborhoods on the northwest side of the city, and people would start throwing things at all of us. Uh, the language that was used was extremely, I mean, it was incredibly offensive. You can only imagine it. Um, and when I announced that I was moving here after Harold won, that I'd been asked to come down to Atlanta, my friend said, how could you go down to the racist south? And I said, are you kidding? Did you all live through the same election I just did? And I, I make, I want, I'm glad we're making this point because it's too easy to single out the South as the bastion of a racist, uh, of racism that exists everywhere. Exactly. And, and when you think about it, during the Civil Rights Movement, when King moved the movement north, when he went to Chicago... Andy Young will tell you the most frightened he's ever been was when they were in Cicero, Cicero. in Chicago. Right. He never stops telling me about that. Right, okay, right? <laughs> Mississippi's got nothing <laughs> on Chicago. Right. I want to move forward, yes. but, I, but I did think that was an important point to Absolutely. make. Absolutely, and this is why I, I um, in White Rage, I don't just talk about the South yeah. because this is the nation. And we need to be really clear about what this nation has done. Let's take another break now. I'll have more with Carol Anderson in a moment. You're listening to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Let's get back to my conversation with Emory University African-American Studies professor Carol Anderson. One of the things that's really fascinating about White Rage is that you published it in the spring of 2016 
so you had been writing this book during the ascension of Donald Trump's candidacy, uh, and it was published um, just months before he won the election. When you think about that, when you mm -hmm. think about what you were writing about in that book and then the subsequent election of President Trump, how do you put those things together? What does it say to you? And so this is why you saw in the, in the original conclusion of the book where I start with Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, I smelled him coming. <laughs> It, it it was what was that it was that old song ooh, ooh that smell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Carol, we Political Rewind tries to be a balanced conversation <laughs> about politics, but proceed. You go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. Um, and and it's because, you know, I that 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 fifth chapter is how to unelect a black president, and it was about Barack Obama. And it was about the incredible policy backlash he faced, not for what he did, but for who he was, a black man who had the audacity to think he could be in the White House. And that was just, it triggered something so deep, so profound, where you had what, Joe Wilson um, screaming during um, Obama's talk, you lie. You lie. I mean, Wow. And he, he received millions of dollars in donations after that. Um, you, you have massive voter suppression laws coming to the fore. You have the, the kind of, of denigration of Obama's very being. You know, he's a Kenyan Muslim socialist, da, 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 anything but president of the United States. And when you think about it in terms of that policy backlash, this is what gets us to Donald Trump. It was, we want the anti-Obama. This is white rage. Hello. It, when I see Donald Trump, I see the embodiment of white rage. And his subsequent policies are the embodiment of white rage. It's th those policies that go after, for instance, undermining the consent decrees between police departments and communities, um, in, like in Baltimore and in Chicago. Um, the, the policies that go after reversing the previous Department of Justice's stance on voter suppression in Ohio and in Texas, all of those kinds of policies that go about providing and opening up full democracy and rights to American citizens, to African Americans, being systematically undermined by this regime. Um, is it important, as we talk about what you feel about President Trump, to make the point that he remains a minority president in the sense that the majority of Americans do not support him as president? Let me put it this way. So one of the things that I often hear or heard, and I still hear, when it comes to Obama, and this will get to, to Trump, it's fine. is that, well, how racist can America be? We elected a black man twice to the White House. And there's this kind of congratulatory pat on the back, yeah. But that subtext of the we is, is that we whites put a black man in the White House twice. So how racist could we possibly be? Except when you look at the data, the majority of whites did not vote for Barack Obama. In fact, the majority of whites have not voted for a Democratic candidate for president since 1964 with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, where Lyndon Baines Johnson, a Democrat, signed into law that the federal government would put its full weight and authority behind recognizing and enforcing the basic citizenship rights of African Americans. Since that time, the majority of whites have not voted for a Democratic candidate for president, and that includes Barack Obama. We have to come to grips with what that means in this nation because that kind of, of anger, ill at ease, this, this sense that, and it's the same kind of sense that Andrew Johnson had after the Civil War. The only way blacks can get civil rights will be at the expense of whites. But that's not how rights work. And we have to, to deconstruct this kind of notion 
because when you look at it again, the majority of whites who voted voted for Donald Trump. They voted for a man who clearly didn't have any kind of policies, who clearly wasn't prepared, equipped, who couldn't string a full sentence together. Um, And you hear, well, you know, he's a successful businessman. How many bankruptcies does it take to, you know? So when you're looking at any of the kinds of standards about what uh, a qualified candidate for president of the United States would have, Donald Trump didn't have it. What he brought to the table, remember there were like 16 candidates, GOP candidates, and many of them had governmental and policy experience. He didn't. What he brought was pure uncut racism. Mexicans are rapists. They're criminals. They're not sending, Mexico's not sending us their best. Birther, 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 birther. Nobody else brought that in the kind of package that Donald Trump did. There's a reason why he rose to the fore in the Republican primaries. We've got to come to grips with that. So this takes me in a a different direction than I thought we were going to go at this moment, but I really want to pursue this with you if it's okay. It it strikes me that we, we do right now understand that the Republican Party has become a rubber stamp for President Trump and that that's very frustrating to a great many people. But the solution to our problems can't be a matter of Democrats versus Republicans. I don't see it. We'll never get anywhere if that's how we decide to solve problems. It's more about opening minds beyond partisan boundaries. Is that a naive statement? No, it's not naive at all. And and so what so what you hear me saying is that we have to have whites have the conversation with whites about what is a true American democracy. And that true American democracy is not the thing that we have working right now in our system because that thing is destructive. And so it has to be so let me so let me give you a um, an example. After the election, uh, Vox went to, a reporter at Vox went to, I think it was Whitley, Kentucky. It was an area in Kentucky where 60% of the people were on the Affordable Care Act. 80% voted for Trump. And so it was trying to figure out this disparity. This, how do, how do you, and so the first question was, so, so, you know, what has it meant for you to have access to health care? Because remember, this plan wasn't only blacks would get health care or only Democrats would get health care. This was like, let's open up access to health care to Americans. And they were like, oh, my diabetes is finally under control because I'm able to go see my doctor regularly. And, you know, my husband, my husband's going to get a liver transplant. That's kind of huge. <laughs> Right. And it was about a son who was like 21, 22, and would have been kicked off of insurance prior to. But now he's able to get his health under control because he's able to regularly see a doctor. So we're talking about major life changes happen in terms of improving the quality of life here. And so then the reporter said, well, but you voted for the Republicans. They're like, yeah. Well, you know they're they're trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. No, we heard them say that, but we don't believe it. Well, you know they tried 60 times when they weren't. Stop, you're scaring me. And then it came. But you know there are those people, and they've got better health insurance than we do, and they don't pay as much, and they don't deserve it. So I'm sitting up here going, okay, those people? <laughs> That's that zero-sum game. And how do you know that those people have better health insurance than you do and don't pay as much as you do when you've got your diabetes under control, when your husband's getting ready to get a liver transplant? So this is what I mean by this isn't about Democrat or Republican. This is about a a white frame that sees that the resources need to only go to whites and if there's any kind of broader distribution, there's something wrong with the system. That's the frame that is doing damage to America. Is there hope for us right now, Carol? What do you, what do you feel? The divide is so enormous. 
you and I sit here and talk. I'm an old white guy. You're an African-American who knows what it means to be discriminated against. I think we hear each other. I think we probably find common ground in a lot of this. But is the experience we can have as individuals something that can grow and matter? There is hope. It, and, and I know it sounds like right now it's like... Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds ir, 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 irreconcilable. And there is hope. And that hope, to me, springs from what I'm seeing in terms of a, a much deeper engagement in this nation about conversations about what kind of democracy do we deserve? What kind of democracy do we want? It's like watching what happened up in Wisconsin when the Wisconsin GOP sought to just kneecap and undercut the victories of that amazing turnout. Yeah, as we tape this show, they have the Republican legislature is trying to basically strip the Democratic governor, uh, the, the newly elected governor, of almost all power, in the same way that the Republicans in North Carolina's legislature did the same thing when the Democrat took control, uh, took control of the governor's mansion there. Exactly, exactly. But what I saw up in Wisconsin is that people came out in droves. They had to open up three rooms for those hearings. And and as much as they, the Republicans had tried to, one, keep this on the down low and to keep this quiet, and people were like, no, this is our democracy. This is our democracy. That kind of engagement is where the hope is. What's it like in your classes? Are they, are they well mixed? Are they well integrated? Diverse? Oh, absolutely. And how are their conversations? My students are amazing. <laughs> I love my Will students. they make a better world for all of us? Yes. I mean, just think about, for instance, what we see the, mm, the students from Parkland being able to do because they're like, we have got to have a world where we're not always doing these, these drills because we're afraid that a shooter is coming in. We've got to have sensible gun laws. And they understood that what that meant was engaging in the political system. You believe that the things you documented in White Rage that you've documented in one person, no vote, the problems you see with the way in which African-Americans have been treated by this, this country, there is hope that things will get better. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Carol Anderson, uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I wish we had another hour or two because there's so much more I'd love to uh, talk with you about. But um, for now, I want to say thank you and say, please come back. Let's talk some more. Definitely. Thank you so much, Bill. Carol Anderson is the author of several books on the racial divide in America, including the award-winning White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, and One Person, No Vote. You can learn more about her work on the Political Rewind website at gpbnews.org. Today's show was produced by Robert Jimison. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again for Political Rewind tomorrow at 2.00.